This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Uh, most interesting gentleman is our sole guest this week. Lawrence Krauss is an internationally known physicist. We have talked to him in the past about uh, uh, the use and misuse of science and related issues. We have a couple of different issues that I are well within his uh, repertoire and wheelhouse. Let me first welcome you to the show, Dr. Krauss. It's always good to be back with you. It is indeed. You're one of the, the terrific guests where I just sort of throw out a topic and then just get out of your way. We're going to talk about God and we're going to talk about uh, uh, woke culture in universities. But before that, you have a major event coming up in Phoenix that uh, may be of interest to some of our listeners. Want to tell us about that? Sure. I think it'll be of interest to all of your listeners. Uh, there are two of them. We're having a big weekend, the inaugural uh, public events weekend of our Origins Project uh, uh, Foundation. And on Sunday, they're both at the Orpheum Theater, on Sunday, April 10th at 7 p.m., uh, Richard Dawkins and I will be on stage at the Orpheum Theater. First, there'll be a 10th anniversary showing of the film The Unbelievers, along with some new footage from some of the people involved. And, and uh, the director of the film will be there. And then Richard and I will be on stage having a dialogue about his new book and things that have happened in the last 10 years. And then we'll go to audience questions and also be a book signing afterwards. So that's Sunday, April 10th. And then Monday, April 11th, also at the Orpheum, again at 7 p.m., we'll have a panel of some of the most well-known cosmologists in the world, including uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, me, uh, Barry Barish, Nobel Prize winner, Alan Guth, the father of inflation, Michael Turner, one of the most well-known theoretical astrophysicists in the world out of the University of Chicago. And we're going to have a panel talking about the mysteries of the cosmos. And uh, that's at 7 p.m. too. And then after intermission there, we'll have audience questions as well. So people can, can um, go to originsproject.org slash events to link up to get tickets or go directly to the box office at the Orpheum Theater. We're also offering 50% off to teachers and students, and um, and you can bundle it if you want to buy tickets for both events. You can buy a ticket for 25% off for that as well. So there's lots of opportunities, and we'll hope uh, it's the first public event we'll be doing since the pandemic began, and it'll be great to be back with an audience in Phoenix. And, and it'll, it, they both promise to be fantastic events. And, and, uh, just in the so end, people come. and so people know that we're not promoting a profit. This is a nonprofit organization. Uh, oh, yes, yes, that. yes. The Origins, thank you. The Origins Project Foundation is indeed a nonprofit. And the whole point of the Origins Foundation is to do part of what we're doing on this program now, but it's, it's getting people excited about science, connecting science to culture, and empowering people to deal with the challenges of the 21st century. So, uh, uh, connecting science and culture. Those are the, some of the things the Origins Project Foundation is, is all about. And, and really getting people excited as well as entertained and provoked. And uh, let me point out, we're going to be giving away some tickets uh, to that event, but you're going to have to stick around. We'll tell you about that later on in the show. But uh, if this intrigues you, you you can not only buy tickets, but if you stick around and listen to the rest of the show, you might have the opportunity to get a couple for free. So uh, let me segue from that, and, and it really gets it gets to the sort of the first evening of your program. Uh, God. Uh, most people believe in some kind of a God. Why do you think that is? 
Well, you know, there are, uh, there are lots of arguments for why it happens uh, based on sort of evolutionary psychology. People, going back to early modern humans, just think about the need to wa- want there to be some purpose to, to everything, including the universe. The people who said, the, the, our ancestors who, who uh, were out in the savannah and heard rustling leaves and said, oh, it's nothing, compared to the ones who heard rustling leaves and said, maybe there's something causing it, maybe it's a predator. Well, the ones who didn't think there was some cause of things, they got eaten. And, uh, and so it, there's a, there was clearly a good evolutionary reason to be looking for purpose behind everything. And I think religion provides a lot of things that people need, not just that, that sense of purpose, but it, 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 it unifies people. It's certainly in the early, early tribal times, it brings people together at some level as an in-group versus out-groups. And I think, um, and also before the rise of science, I think it, you know, it gave different world religions gave some argument for why we were here, which is a question we all ask ourselves. So religion sort of has has served as a way to try and, and appease that concern and question that people have. And, uh, and what's really happened is that most of the issues where religion provided answers or what appeared to be answers to questions of, of existence and, 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 and how the universe came to be and how we came to be, uh, science has demonstrated that, of course, that there, there are scientific explanations that, that you, so you don't need anything supernatural. But that vestige of of that need for also the need, you know, the universe doesn't seem to be fair. It, it doesn't treat people fairly. And the idea that there's someone looking out for us in some way is very comforting. And so it's easy to it's easy to see how how religion serves many of those roles in society and why it persists. And of course, now I think one of the reasons. It frankly persists is that parents teach their children um, their religion, and 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 I've always that's always kind of concerned me a little bit because you know I I think I understand people think they're doing the right thing, but these notions of existence and God and 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 all all these things are very deep, and you know a three or four year old kid really can't assess them adequately. But once you're brought up in a certain religion, it's very hard to think otherwise. It's not very surprising that most people who believe in God believe in the God of their parents' religion. Well, it's an extraordinary it's someone it's else's religion. Extraordinary percentage that, uh, you know, yeah. if there were some external reality, then why is it that uh, some astronomical percentage of people believe at, at at least some level something of the of a, of a similar nature to what their parents believe? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it should be very telling. And, and the main point is that, you know, the religions are inconsistent with one another for the most part. And so people who believe in have one religion, as, as uh, you know, Richard Dawkins had said, and not many other people have said, you know, they don't believe in all the other religions. And the difference between being sort of an atheist and being religious is there's just one more religion that you don't believe in. Um, but I think the, the, uh, that, that and, and, you know, it was actually Richard who awakened me once to this, notion of assigning kids religion there was a picture on the, on the cover of a newspaper a front page of a newspaper of four little kids at christmas time and it was cute one and and they were all hanging out together and he said, he said here's one christian kid here's one jewish kid here's one muslim kid here's one hindu kid and you go oh isn't that nice then you think but we're labeling them they're three or four year old kids we're not saying it'd be like labeling them. here's one neoconservative three-year-old here's one liberal three-year-old you know Here's one libertarian, a three-year-old. I mean, they're they're really not capable of dealing with the concepts, and to 
to, to label them that way is really kind of a disservice and, it, and demonstrates what we're doing uh, to, to the children. I, I certainly would put myself in that category. I was I was brought up in a Catholic school, and uh, there's an awful lot that, that I was taught at a very young age that at some very basic level is very difficult to disassociate yourself from. Oh, yeah, it's very hard. I mean, because you don't learn in your head, you kind of learn it in your heart. And some, it's really hard to, to, to overcome that for a lot of people. And, you know, and look, let me say, for a lot of people, it's, they don't feel the need to overcome it, and it gives them a kind of solace and comfort, and, and I'm not denying that. But for people who do say, you know, I, I just question this, and I don't, there's something that doesn't seem sensible to me. I'm, for a lot of people, it's really hard to overcome that that early childhood education, plus the pressure of people around them. I've met, after that movie, The Unbelievers, came out, I got lots of letters from people from around the country who said, you know, I, I'm living in a small rural area in the South United States, say, and, and I have questions. And first of all, I kind of feel like a bad person for having those questions. And secondly, I have no one to talk to about it. I feel like a bad person, and I have no one to talk to about it. And, and there, may be a social the sanction, is, there may be a social sanction on you for going public with those feelings. Oh, there would be a social sanction. And, and so one of the good things that that movie provided when people could see people around the world being happy to, to say, look, we're, we're ethical, moral people, but we don't, we don't happen to have a religion, they suddenly said, well, I realize I'm not alone. And I think that's, that's really important for people to realize it's okay to question, in fact, as a scientist, to bring the connection between this and science. There, everything should be open to question. Everything. We should encourage children to question and parents to question. And the notion that you can't question, say, the existence of God, and if you do, you're a bad person— is 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 a tragedy, and, and it's but it is embedded in in many of our religions. We we got a break right now, but I'll be back in just a minute. You, I, there are three separate things that uh, was were uh, kind of suggested by things. As you were talking, I, I came up with three questions. I'll ask you them after we return in just a moment in the think tank. The think tank, KTAR News on ninety two three FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Dr. Lawrence Krauss discussing what is really kind of the ultimate question, the the existence of God and the reasons therefore. Uh, one of the things you said in the in the last segment that caught my attention as well, um, and it's certainly true, uh, there are many people who choose to believe in God because they want to believe in God because they take some comfort from it. Uh, I suppose the other view of that would be, wait a minute, I don't want to believe in something just because I want to believe in it. I want to believe in it because there's evidence for it. Is that, uh, you see people kind of fundamentally dividing along that line? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think the fact that (laughs) one of the things that times teaches us is that, um, that, um, the universe doesn't care what we want. And, uh, and that, that is a really hard notion for a lot of people to, to accept, that the universe doesn't care what we want. But it, does, it, it, it just is the way it is. It does, and, and I think that is a real, that's a real dividing factor for people, because um, the notion that uh, we all want to believe. But we, there's a lot of things we all want to believe every day. And, and 
for most of us, for most of us, many of these things we want to believe get us through the day. We want to believe we create a world that would be a world we'd like to be in that you love your job or you or your colleagues or your family and you may not that day, but you have but you convince yourself you do these things just to make it through the day. And so I think religion is that that wanting to believe is is a is a a key part of 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 the religious experience for many people. And um, oh, and I forget the first thing you asked. Actually, I was thinking about the second thing, but the first thing was what. I, I I think it was sort of two parts of the same question, really. I, I you know I I react to that. You, your comment: the universe doesn't care what we believe. Well, some people kind of take in a way a parallel position. You know, sort of I don't care what sort of what the universe wants. I want to believe in God because it makes me feel good. It gives me a sense of purpose. Oh yeah, okay. And look, and that's and that you know that's a really important point because a lot of people say if I give up my belief in God, what what gets me awake in the morning why don't i just kill myself and the point is that yeah i do understand that that gives you a sense of purpose but the but just think about this amazing fact that you're alive that you're alive in this weird universe where we're in a remote corner of a of a solar system in a remote corner of a galaxy in the middle of nowhere and yet we are endowed with a consciousness that allows us to ask questions about the universe to understand the history of the universe back to the earliest moments of its existence and beyond and so the fact that the universe doesn't exist for us should not should not diminish our sense of of wonder or even our sense of purpose the fact is we have this brief time on earth and it should enliven us it should empower us to to enjoy that experience and and explore everything there is about being human so you don't need to believe in a divine person or even an afterlife to to recognize that the time here is precious and in my mind, the fact that I see no evidence for an afterlife doesn't give me a less sense of purpose. It makes every moment here on Earth more precious. Because that's all you get. This is That's all you get. One time around, and when people say, you know, what's it going to be like after you die? The, the common answer that I like the best is, what was it like before you were born? <laughs> Very different for you, but for a lot of others, not all that different. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, exactly. one of the other points you made was about, uh, you know, that I, I want to believe in God because it'll give me a, a sense of equity. And you said that there's a lot in the universe that's not fair. Some of us yeah, are born yeah. in places where their existence is almost preordained to be miserable. And the notion of an afterlife allows one to tell folks like that there'll be equity in the the next time around because the last shall be first. Yeah, in fact, there'll be more equity. In fact, yeah, the ones who didn't get very much will be it'll, it'll be reverse equity in the sense that ones that missed out the first time will get something some other time. And that, of course, is a real attraction. The afterlife, the fact that that you know, yeah, if you didn't have what you wanted now, or you'll get it later, and you'll be eternally happy and all the rest is is one way of you know appeasing people especially people who miss out especially poor people especially people of uh, who are underprivileged and in third world countries it's very effective um this the notion it would be nice if the if the universe were fair it would be nice if human affairs were fair but if we want to make them fair we have to we have to it's up to us to do it but this notion that people have that um that the uh, that the world owes them a living is unfortunately um, just not true. And moreover, the notion that everything that bad 
that everything bad that happens to you is someone else's fault. Either, either it's the universe's fault or, or the fault of people around you has also sort of trickled in, unfortunately, beyond religion to this notion. It's, it's happening at universities. You're seeing people say, gee whiz, I'm not getting ahead. I'm getting poor grades or I'm getting this or that. And it must and I've been told my whole life that I'm I'm good and I'm excellent and there's nothing wrong with me, you know. And then I, I have no. Eighty percent of the population harder. thinks they're above average. Yeah, no. <laughs> I like to say it's only Lake Wobegon that all children are above average. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Garrison Keillor's famous story, and 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 it's true. Most people feel that way, and sometimes you you are not, and sometimes when you do poorly, it's it, it's it's the fact that you haven't worked hard, or maybe you have no talent in that area. And that's really hard to, to accept. And unfortunately, we're seeing more and more in educational systems, people being told it can never be your fault. Everyone has to succeed. We, don't, we have to make sure that everyone gets through, regardless of the work they do or the quality of their work. And unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, in my mind, fortunately, especially higher education is, is a meritocracy. Um, it's it, it's not as if every student who goes to university should succeed. In fact, uh, if you don't work, you shouldn't succeed. And if, and and if you're in an area that you don't have any abilities, uh, that your natural abilities don't work, or you're not willing to work hard enough to overcome that 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 uh, that penalty, then you shouldn't. You know, if you shouldn't go to medical school and not be able to be a doctor. Obviously, most people would want their doctors to have worked hard and be training. We can't just say, oh, it's a shame. For whatever reason. And the problem is people then identify reasons for why the world isn't fair to them. There's our segue into our next segment. We're going to be talking about university life, woke culture, PC, all the rest when we return with Lawrence Krauss in just a moment. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Dr. Lawrence Krauss, a renowned physicist uh, and uh, someone who has spent uh, the better part of his life in an assortment of universities over uh, the last several decades. And uh, one of the recent development in our universities is the development of, of woke culture. Would you care to define that? Well, it's good. It's it's. Uh, that's a good question. How to define it? I think that the the definition is that there are, that there are built-in obstacles and inequities in our culture that interfere with various people's um, uh, ability to succeed, and that you cannot question those. The first thing, it's very religious in nature. You can't question that that assumption that for, and they're based on identity. Interesting tie-in. Yeah, you're saying religion is that which does not question, and that's, that's very interesting. Very secular. It's it's a kind of secular religion. It's really, and it, the difference between this secular religion and regular religions is there's no op- opportunity for repentance or 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 uh, or, or uh, uh, being accepted. Once if you if once you once you disobey the rules, you can never come back in. You can, you can't repent in any way. But the, so the idea it's based on on notions of identity, of no, either sex, uh, gender, uh, race, um, all, all sorts of different aspects of identity that these that there are built-in obstacles, and even and you can not only can you not question them, but if you 
don't accept that those obstacles exist. And you don't treat people differently on the basis of sex, gender, uh, race, sexual orientation. If you don't accommodate for that, then you're actively the opposite. So if you if you say, look, I don't I, I want uh, I don't care about the color of your skin. I care about the quality of your character. As Martin Luther King said, you're a racist. And it's rather interesting. And, and for example, there was, you know, people, there was a recent survey of, of, of people where they tried to explore to see if there was examples of racism in education. And people say it's just generally accepted by a lot of groups and unfortunately by a lot of university administrators and scientific organizations that there's systemic racism in science. But then you ask for examples and you try and ask people and they can't find any examples. And then you say the fact that you can't see it means you must be a racist. That makes it dis- kind of, un- not disprovable then. It reminds, it reminds me of the way they used to test whether people were witches in the old days. They'd ask if you're a witch, and if you said no, you're a witch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, it's also leading to the notion that, uh, that merit alone is also um, racist or sexist, which is actually, you see, all these things do a disservice to people of, of color or, or a different gender because it's, it assumes that somehow if you, if you, if, if you promote based on merit in, in, in either in, in a higher education, either at a student level or a faculty level, that minorities or women are going to miss out. But, of course, that makes the assumption that they can't make it on the basis of merit, which is, of course, racist and sexist on its own right. And you're seeing the, the sad thing that's happening from all of this is you're seeing that people who question that basic assumption are being ostracized, sometimes removed from their positions. Or, you know, there was a recent example that this notion, universities should be based, as I often say, the purpose of education is to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> because if you're comfortable, you're never pushing beyond your, your, your comfort zone. You're never learning something new. But people now, they say, oh, I, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to hear it. And just last week at Yale Law School, they were having a discussion of basically about about freedom of religion, it turned out. And there was an atheist group and a, and, a, and, a, and a law firm that has, you know, successfully fought several cases before the Supreme Court trying to, um, you know, on behalf of kind of right wing religious groups. But they were there together and the students drowned out the, the right wing religious group people and wouldn't allow them to speak. And and that notion how can you have learning if you can't have open discussion? Free speech is not just the basis of a democratic society, but it's the basis of learning. Because one of the most important things about free speech, that why you have to allow ideas you don't like or upset you, is that sometimes you may find out they're right. And if you don't listen to them, you'll never find out you're wrong. But in university, among all places, they should not be constrained by ideas that may seem hurtful or, or uh, upsetting to anyone or offensive to others. But you're seeing that what's really sad and what's really is this, A, this assumption that there are built-in inequities in spite of the fact that universities are working, been worked very hard ever since I was a chair of a department to ensure um, uh, opportunities for both women and minorities to get positions. That's been going on for 40 years. It's not new. It's been, it's been around. But the assumption is that in spite of that, universities are excluding those groups. But then the second thing is that somehow um, that that by questioning these things that or by bringing up ideas that some people find offensive, you're hurting people. And that by also telling some people, no, you're not. What you did was not good enough. You're also 
uh, racist or sexist, even if it's just on the basis of Marx. And so if you when you get administrators accepting this notion of systemic racism without any empirical evidence, and then you go, there are other people saying, anytime I go into this classroom, whatever I feel must be, I must be being oppressed because of some aspect of my identity. You get, you, you, you remove all opportunities for higher education. And, and, and the value of going, as I say, to going to university to learn to see things differently than you think they should be seen and to interact with people who are different. Everyone doesn't have to be the same. All of those things, if they go away, then our higher education system in the United States will go down the tubes. Can I, I want to make a suggestion and, and have you react to it as a kind of a, a explanation. I think this is a, a, what started as a good idea taken to an extreme where it lost its merit. Uh, I, I think it started out with, A, let's be sensitive to the experiences yeah. of others. Let's recognize that there has been discrimination of a variety of sorts and try to rectify it. But as uh, famously Teddy Roosevelt once said, every reform movement has its lunatic fringe. That seems to be it, it seems to be taken to such an extreme uh, position that it no longer resembles what it started out to be, and particularly when it shuts down free discussion of just about anything. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, the intent of all of this was important, to try and ensure equality of opportunity, which is really what's important, not equality of outcome. And that is sort of a liberal notion that's been very important. And to recognize that, yes, the United States has had incredible racism sexism and for what it's worth anti-semitism over time but but the united states now isn't the united states of 100 years ago and to recognize that we need to constantly work to ensure that we have a free and open society all of those are are good goals but as you say when you push them to extremes then what you what you do is you ultimately hurt everybody including the groups you're trying to help because for example if you, if you, what, it, this isn't happening, it's, this particular example isn't happening in the United States, it's from Canada, which doesn't have the same uh, sort of uh, uh, constitutional rights in, in certain areas that the United States does. But there are universities in Canada, there's one in, in, in Nova Scotia, that was advertising a, a chemistry professor, assistant professor position, and it, it said that no males could apply for that position. And when you do that, what, what are you doing? First of all, you're excluding a large crowd of people. But then whenever the person you hire automatically has an asterisk to name because you're saying, that, you know, for the rest of their lives, you're going to say, well, were you hired because you were qualified or because you're a woman? So that though, if you have to think about these things in the long term as well, and uh, and when you push them beyond when you push them not only beyond the level of reason, but when you make them such that questioning them makes you a heretic that has to be excluded, that has to be canceled, that you can't speak up, you can't have a job, or any of those things, then you're, then it's the worst of all possible. It's, it, look, it's what's happened. I mean, if you want to take an extreme example, take Russia in 19, you know, at the Russian Revolution. The intent of the Russian Revolution was, was probably a good one, which is there were a lot of poor people who weren't getting a, a proper slice of the pie. But the end result, certainly with Stalinism, was you can't question the orthodoxy of communism. And that kind of ideological bent, the, uh, the fact that you cannot um, go against ideology, is what we're seeing now 
with identity politics. And, and, in, and unfortunately, we're seeing it probably more in academic environments than anywhere else in the country. And it's a real concern. Ideology should never get in the way. But this is ultimately an ideology. The ultimate irony here to me is that I see parallels between this type of belief system and that of fundamentalist religions that share the common thread that there's a doctrine that thou must believe. And if you do not believe this, you are a heretic or or some equivalent word, depending on the religion. Uh, it, it is it is a kind of secular religion, as I say. And in some sense, it's, you know, I was on a panel at Oxford University, a debate on the question was, is everyone religious? And I actually went on the side that said, yes, my atheist colleagues were on the other side, because I said, if we if if everyone wasn't religious by nature, we wouldn't need science. Everyone would automatically be scientists and question themselves. But I think what you're seeing is this kind of secular religion replacing organized religion in some way. People feel the need to believe these some notion and 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 that cannot be questioned. And, the, that, and that's funny, the common thread that we come come back to that you're not yeah. allowed to question religion if you're a fundamentally if you're question your religion you're a you're a heretic or an apostate or whatever yeah, and yeah, and exactly such a parallel with uh with woke culture yeah and it's and it used to be that you know high, that the way out of this was education the way to get people to expose to ideas other than their own to at least question their own ideas which is really what education is all about that was that was the place of, of, of the high schools and universities, and if and the scary thing is that universities are turning away from that as the place instead of being the place to enlighten people, it's the place to reinforce people's pre-held beliefs. And if you argue against it, it's kind of amazing how you get labeled. I my politics have always been by American standards left le, left to center, but when I question this notion, I'm called a right wing pundit. And the interesting thing is that that generally. Questioning these kind of things can only be now, you know, I uh, published in, in I, I, I write some now for the more for the Wall Street Journal than I did for the New York Times before, because these issues are now in some sense considered to be the province of the right. And it's really unfortunate um, that ultimately there's no doubt that this no, these notions came from the left who wanted more, who were more concerned about issues of equity and equality. And for good reasons, as you pointed out, but it, what it's now turned into is an abuse. And um, and and it, and any time, anywhere you go, when people say you can't question this idea, you should question that idea, and you should <laughs> question them for why they're asking, why they're saying you can't question it. We'll return and, with and, Lar- um, and, yeah. We'll return with Sorry, Lawrence Krauss in in just a moment. Wrap this up, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Origins projects and how you can get uh, a couple of free tickets to those events when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Dr. Lawrence Krauss talking about religion and uh, and interestingly talking about woke culture uh, as the modern uh, sort of leftist secular religion in a way. Uh, uh, We'll return to that in just a moment, but uh, I want to give you just a minute again to tell us about the the Origins Project, the event that's going to occur here on April 10 and 11, and then we'll tell folks how how they can get a couple of free tickets to this. Okay, great. Well, we're having... 
one of the purposes of the Origins Project Foundation, the nonprofit foundation I run, is to not just excite people about the world around them and to ask questions uh, and to learn things that help them address the challenges of the 21st century, but also put them in direct contact with the people who are leading our, our understanding of the world in different ways, both in science and culture. And with these events, what we're planning to do is bring people in close contact with them. On April 10th at the Orphan Theater at 7 p.m. is Richard Dawkins, and I will be on stage after the movie The Unbelievers, and we'll be talking about many issues, including some we've talked about here, and there'll be a book signing afterwards. On April 10th, 11th, we're going to have a panel of some of the most well-known cosmologists in the world uh, talking about probing the mysteries of the universe. It'll have people like uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Barry Barish, who won the Nobel Prize in physics, Alan Guth, who developed the idea of inflation. I'll be on the panel moderating it, uh, Michael Turner, others. And it'll be a real chance to learn about what the current picture of the universe is. And, of course, we'll have questions afterwards. So, uh, and, and there's special pricing for teachers and students, 50% off. So I hope we'll see many people from the Phoenix area there. And the opportunity for the ultimate in special price, which is free, is you, you can, we will run a lottery, and here's how you get your name uh, on the list for that. I have a website, mikeoneal.org. It is, by the way, how to reach me, uh, social media, email, the rest. Well, if you go to www.mikeoneal.org, at the bottom of that landing page, there is a button that says Other Request, and that will initiate an email mail to that website and you just put down there put something about or, or put the word origins projects and whether or not you would be interested in the the Sunday event the Monday event or both and uh, we will randomly pull uh, Sometime this show is running both this Saturday and Sunday, and uh, on Monday morning, after both of those have run, we will do a drawing, and uh, we will select one person for Sunday and one for Monday, Uh, and if the person who... uh, is the first one we pull has has indicated that they would like to go to both, then they'll get both tickets. Otherwise, we'll split them up. So, uh, again, www.mikeoneal.org, and and then go to the bottom and uh, select other requests, and uh, uh, we will do a random selection from that. To return to the question of uh, woke culture, uh, you've been at the university for uni- assorted universities for over two decades. Uh, uh, when did this start, and why? You were you were you were th- you were there long, and you were there before. So <laughs> when did this happen? Well, well, why? I think it, as you indicated earlier, it began out of real concerns. There were real inequities in our society. Women weren't allowed in in in, in university. Let's face it, in the Ivy Leagues till nineteen almost nineteen seventy. And, and so there, there were real inequities, and same with, obviously, race. And, and so there was, I think it began out of an honest idea to make some kind of recompense to, to, to um, somehow make up for, for those inequities and try and, 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 try and uh, uh, reverse those inequities. So I think it began out of, the, uh, out of real issues, the notion of a, affirmative action being that to try and make up for inequities, you could try and give people a leg up, and I think it was a it was a, a well intentioned notion that there were that there were built there there were there had been built in inequities in our society and racism and sexism in particular, and and that um, to try and and uh, uh, counter that, make up for it, and uh, remove it 
you would give people a leg up early on because uh, uh, there were they, they had there were problems in schools, problems with it, with getting access to education and other things. And so, as you remember, there was a big issues about affirmative action in the in the seventies and eighties. But there were reasons for doing it. And so, what we what what uh, what happened, I think, actually, is that there were there was a bureaucracy built up, or particularly a bureaucracy at universities built up that's now under the name of diversity, equity, inclusion, whose purpose initially was, was a good one. But like all bureaucracies, what happens is the bureaucracy remains even after the problem has been removed. And what you see, and then there has the, the bureaucracy has to find new reasons to, for its existence. And so you, so there were big efforts when I was chairman of a physics department and, and for, for 15 years in the 1990s, um, if we didn't hire a, a woman for a, for a particular position, uh, we'd we'd have to write a long statement about why, uh, the, if there were any female candidates, they hadn't risen to the top, and it was to try and make sure that that we were that there weren't we weren't biased, that we weren't uh, working against, uh, say, women, and that and that was the intent. But that was in the 1990s, and and that's that long, the need for that is long past. Yet you're seeing now that people, young people, who are applying for faculty jobs. Say uh, someone working on string theory, the most abstract area of, say, mathematical physics, has to, in their application, explain how their work will will somehow actively counter systemic racism or uh, or other inequities, which is just ridiculous because string theory doesn't have anything to do with any of that. But you have you have to do those kind of loyalty oaths now, and the people who are imposing that are the bureaucracies that developed in the 1980s, and those people have hired more and more. The biggest hiring at universities has not been faculty. It's been in diversity, equity, and inclusion groups that have now, there are literally hundreds of these people at universities spending hundreds of millions of dollars, and they're not going to go away, and they're going to ensure, you see, if you say that that problem doesn't exist, then their reason for existence goes away, and they're going to make sure that that doesn't happen. And a reason why I think, uh, you know, there's there's some cases going up to the Supreme Court, which may uh, basically uh, prevent affirmative action in universities. I don't think they're going to be of great consequence because I think affirmative action is so currently built into the DNA of our universities that they will that that those kinds of actions will persist anyway. Well, look, the, here the key point is. And this is, this is my point. I, there's still inequities in our society, and there's still racism in various areas of our society, and potentially sexism. It's not endemic at universities, but the place to solve it isn't at universities. You don't solve you don't solve those inequities at, at the last end of education. What you try and do is you try and spend money to ensure that inner cities kids in in, in American cities can get a good education. When I lived in Cleveland, where I was chairman of that physics department, I'd go into those schools and the kids didn't even have books. Uh, They didn't have money for books. And so how can they expect to compete adequately at a university level? The place where we need to solve those inequities is in supporting, and and this here is my liberal tendencies coming out, is is supporting and providing support for those kids in public schools, providing uh, support for, for enough support for single parents to be able to function in our society. And, and so the, what you have to do is give kids a good family environment and a good school environment, but you don't solve it at the PhD level. That's just too late. 
So basically, you, you've you got kids coming in, that some of them that are ill-prepared. The, the fix is to deal with the lack of preparedness where it originated. Exactly. To deal with the lack of preparedness or to, even, or to have remedial programs. Out of time. You know, you Lawrence Krauss, thank you very much. Okay. We'll see you next week in the Think Tank. 